Well, I'm here with Ray Blakeney, uh, and uh, we've, we've got some really interesting stuff to talk about today. Um, real quick, just to introduce him to you guys, he is a CEO and edupreneur of multiple companies, um, which means that he starts education-based businesses. A very cool term. I had not heard it before uh, before researching him. Uh, for example, he's the CEO and founder of LiveLingua. It's an online service that pairs you with a one-on-one Spanish tutor. Uh, he's the founder of multiple other companies as well, including Ravensoft Ventures, which holds a portfolio of, I believe, seven total com- companies. You can tell me if that's right, with number eight on the way in January. Uh, in January, Ray is launching Podcast Hawk, which is a service that helps public-facing individuals increase their publicity by automating the process of getting them booked on multiple podcasts at once automatically. Um, I said automated twice there, but that's all right. <laughs> you can uh, you can uh, you can create your account now at podcasthawk.com or sign up for early access. Um, and uh, Ray, uh, first of all, how did I do on your bio? Does that sound right? That all sounds good. He actually made me sound a lot cooler than I actually am in real life. So I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, uh, if my wife read that bio, it would be a lot more deprecating. I'll tell you that. Well, so, you can yeah. show it to her after it's recorded and we'll, we'll see. <laughs> so um, you've got you've got your hands in a lot of things. You've got a lot of companies. And that's something that I know a lot of entrepreneurs aspire to, to do, to be, um, myself included, actually. Uh, and I think, you know, one thing that people worry about is how how do you manage your time between so many things? Like there's, there's so many things involved in running a business. You must have spent a lot of time and energy setting these businesses up so that they don't require you to be in the whirlwind all day. Um, how did you get to that point? And w- w- what hurdles did you overcome to, to do that? Sure, Max, great question. And yeah, it took a long time. So I've been at this for about 12 or 13 years. I wish I could tell you, wow, I got it right the first time. Absolutely not. I mean, I messed up a ton of times to be able to get to where I'm at today, and I still am messing up. So don't get me wrong. It's not like I got this all figured out and everything runs smoothly every single time I do it. So one of the keys to running multiple businesses, again, a mistake I made in the beginning, is don't start one or two. The other one's running itself. Um, Because a lot of entrepreneurs, we get caught up in that shiny object syndrome. We build one business, it pseudo starts working, and then we just kind of start resting on our laurels and we start going after that other business idea, that other business idea. And then we end up with a whole bunch of partially working business ideas. That's where people burn out because partially working business ideas require you to go in and fix them every once in a while. And if two or three of them break at the same time, they both go Mm -hmm. down the tubes, right? So the key to running multiple businesses is to build them in such a way that you know you can either hire people to run them or they run themselves generally people have to be involved in my experience i have not had a business the whole 100 percent passive income if it exists i haven't figured it out yet right i have teams that are there i have staff meetings live lingua is my biggest business we're the third largest online language school in the world we're the only one that doesn't have vc money behind it so you know everybody else got 10 20 million dollars wow. um and we started for 60 dollars for Bluehost hosting. That's what it cost back in the day, 60 bucks for the domain and Bluehost. Um, and that's and I put the website up there, which was something awful. Um, you know, when I first launched the website 12 years ago, I'm not a, gra- I'm a, I'm a programmer. I'm not a graphic designer. So, you know, I can make the pages work. I just can't make them look pretty. Um, and it took a while for us to get it. I mean, it took us about four or five years to get that business up to the point where it was making the same amount of money that I would have made mm-hmm. as a computer programmer. Now, I'm not even saying seven figures. So if you're looking for like, hey... The story where in seven, I got seven figures within a year. No, I'm not that. It took me seven years to get to a seven-figure business. Um, and LiveLink, what was that? And once I did that, I had a team in place. Again, trial and error. I had to fire people, promote it from inside. Then I started to be able to either go the angel investing route, which is how I, you know, some of these companies are built. So I'm not the day-to-day operational partner. Um, or it freed up some time so I could build some of these businesses. But even then, I only try to build one business at a time. I'm putting a cavity on there. I'm building two now, but that happened by accident. Um, so that was not really so planned. So one of the things you said was you don't want it to be partially running itself. Um, when you say run itself, can you like paint that picture for me? Because I think I think a lot of people view that as an aspiration, but actually visualizing what that looks like might be, might be different than what people expect. Yeah, so generally speaking, when I say running itself, it means there's – you are not responsible for anything involved in the day-to-day operations. Um, that means if your server crashed today, would you? if you still have the person who has to go in and fix the server, it's not running itself. If somebody sends a complaint email 
or it sends an email and you have to answer that email, it's not running itself. If there's any service provided, if you're an agency, for example, and you know, you're doing Facebook ads and you have to go and check whether the Facebook ads are updated or you know the budget's up to a level or the PPC or SEO links are being built, it's not running itself. Running itself means that everybody, you have a team that's doing all of those things and your job is just to make sure that everybody on your team is doing their job, which if you pick the right people, it's usually a one hour staff meeting every week. Once you get to the level, you can even get an operational manager or project manager that even takes care of that and you just have to meet with them 30 minutes every week. Um, I do an all hands meeting once every three months, but that's me. That's optional. I like being you know, in contact with my teams. My teams aren't huge. Live Language, for example, has an eight person team. Uh, my other businesses have four people here. The chocolate factory I owned in Asia, I only got contact with my, you know, my operational partner there. I honestly, I'd never met half the staff. I, I had no idea who they were. Um, so you have to be able to put it in that place. But again, I didn't make the chocolate. I did work on the line for a day just to learn the basic process more for interest on my end, but it's not my job to do that. So was your aspiration always to have a business that runs itself? I think a lot of entrepreneurs kind of like romanticize the idea of like hustling super hard every day, all day, and that's going to be their life. Did you start in that mindset and then evolve into a... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, especially when you're younger. So I'm 40 years old now. I started when I was 27. And you'll find it's an age thing as well, right? At 27, you can hustle all day long, all you like. But trust me, by the time you get to 40, you're about, and I'm guessing when I get to 50 and 60, it'll be even worse. You just it, you can't do it, right? It's just not there. You also have priorities if you have a family and kids at that point. Um, so in the beginning, definitely. So our first businesses that we launched were a chain of language schools in Mexico. It was a brick and mortar. It was much more traditional. It was how I learned SEO, search engine optimization, um, because we – I. We'd had no money, so I'm like, I can't pay for ads. How do I get people to find us? And then I discovered that something called SEO existed, and you know, I taught myself, and I we got into that world. But back then, I had the mentality you were talking about. My mentality is, we're going to work without vacations for ten years, and hopefully, at that point, we'll make enough money that we can actually have a vacation. Yeah, we did that for two years. I started burning out. By the third year, my wife was like, "Okay, we have to take a vacation. Doesn't matter." Um, we were doing okay for our business. We were making maybe fifty or sixty thousand, which in Mexico is plenty. Um, but it's you know I was working in the summers, which were the high season. We would work ninety days without a day off. So I didn't feel stressed. I didn't feel exhausted until she booked a one week at an all inclusive resort, and I told him all inclusive. I'm like I was in the Peace Corps. I backpack across <laughs> countries. I stay at a youth hostels. What are you talking about all inclusive? But she's like, nope, already booked. Got the plane tickets. We're going next week. I got there and suddenly my whole body went, <laughs> I didn't realize I was stressed because I'd been up at that level for so long that it just became part of what I felt. And I got there and my whole body just kind of relaxed. And then I noticed the difference. I'm like, I have been stressed. If I did this for 10 years, my body would have been a wreck. Um, so it took that for me to actually mm. realize that I was in that place. Um, because it, at the time I was like, I'm just working. This is what we're supposed to do, right? It's what all the business books say. You Hustle, you work 14 hours a day, and that's how you build businesses. Um, hustle's involved, work is involved, but that's not the way to do it. I think what a lot of us get caught up in the mythology mm. of the entrepreneur. I you know, I worked in Silicon Valley. Um, I, I, did, I like to say as a programmer, I did my tour of duty in Silicon Valley. We all got to kind of pass through there at some point. That's what I did there. I mean, I worked for in a company that was competing with PayPal, um, and I don't think I had a day off in a year. Wow. I mean, we just literally worked Saturday, maybe a Sunday afternoon or something like that. So that's how I learned to be an entrepreneur. And I thought that was the way it can be done. But there's a reason why a lot of entrepreneurs burn out. You either win the lottery and you get that exit, which is like, you know, one in a million. I mean, I know we hear the stories all the time, but out of all the companies that fail, that's one in a million. Most entrepreneurs, that's not what they want. And also, I didn't realize this later. You have to ask what you want out of life. What is this business you're building for? Are you building the next Facebook? Then yeah, maybe you have to hustle for the next 14 hours for the next 20 years to do that. You want to make a, have a business that brings in 100, 200, 300 thousand dollars a year for you and your family, but still gives you free time? That's a totally different mentality, right? Um, it's a totally different business. You know, let's say you want to have a half a million dollar business that gives you a 70% profit margin, but you only work four hours a day. That sounds pretty sweet to me. Uh, you know, it's but most people try to build the $10 million business, even though they'll be miserable if they ever had a $10 million business. So, one thing that comes to mind here, and kind of from my own experience, right? It's a lot easier, I would think, to to have a business that runs itself 
if that was your intention from the start, right? But here in your journey, what you're talking about mm -hmm. is you were already in it. You were like already hustling super hard, making that kind of a shift. Suddenly you have to make sure that your profit margin is high enough to hire people to do what you're doing. You have to make sure That's that you have processes in place that other people can follow, hire people, train mm -hmm. them. Like what, what did that process go look like for you when you were shifting from hustle mode to CEO mode? There are generally two things that stop people from doing this, and I know it because I experienced both of them. The first one is the mentality that nobody can do it as well as me. Um, I can't hire somebody to answer the emails because I am the best email answerer that exists mm -hmm. on this planet. I know I thought that for a while. <laughs> um, until another friend of mine who was an entrepreneur came up to me and he, she said, there are 8 billion people on this planet. You think you're better than every <laughs> single one of them at answering emails. And then you're kind of, that puts you in your place. You're like, well, probably not, right? I mean, there's probably somebody else out there that can answer emails as well as I can. And then you realize once you start looking for them that most people can probably answer emails better than you can. You, you were just kind of living in your head. So that's the first person thing that stops people. The second one's what you talked about, right? It's the cost, especially when we're starting off. At least if you start off like me and it sounds like you, Max, it's like bootstrapping, right? We didn't have a rich dad give us a million dollars to start a business. That's a whole, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But, you know, if you get to the point where you're just making enough to live, you're like, eh, I can't hire somebody now because then I don't make enough to live anymore. You have to value it. You have to start valuing your time more at that point, mm -hmm. right? Because we, we look at our time as free. Again, a mindset I was in. We look at our, our time as, oh, if I do it myself, it's free. But if I pay somebody to do it, it would cost me money. But that's generally not the case. In fact, if you do it yourself and you're at a certain point in your business where your value is kind of, let's say, you know, worth $50 an hour, you're spending $50 an hour to do it. Well, you could pay somebody else $5 an hour to do it. So the secret that I, not, it's not much of a secret, but the way that I do it there is geo-arbitrage, right? Um, made famous by the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. But simply, when you're starting off, you find something that's on your, you know, that you're doing that's taking a lot of time that you can find somebody else to do this very repetitive. And you find somebody in another country to do it. So Philippines is generally the way at place I go. I'm a little biased. I'm half Filipino. So, you know, I'll go to the Philippines. But you can find people in the rest of the world. It's, English is very widely spoken. People find people in Latin America. You find people in Eastern Europe to do it. Um, that's the first step I would recommend to any entrepreneur. Find somebody to just take this simple administrative work off. They're going to be cheap. They're going to be low level. Do not expect too much out of them, right? If you're saying they're going to do everything for me, these people are not. You're hiring them for a purpose. It's to answer emails. It's to keep your schedule in place. It's to maybe do research on competitor research online. It's very simple, kind of very focused work. That's the first step in hiring. My second step in hiring is a trick that I use, which is I hire expats. So you, you know, if you want to get somebody from the U.S. that's college educated, or the U.K. or Europe or Australia that's college educated, but you want to pay them seventy-five percent off what they would make in the U.K., U.S. or somewhere else, look for an expat. Um, look specifically, you look for a category of people called trailing spouses, which um, generally women, not to be sexist, because but um, you can also have men. My my operational manager at LiveLingua is actually a trailing spouse, um, and he's what he does is he's married somebody in these countries, so he's from the UK, but he married somebody in Mexico. He's got his education from the UK, he's got his masters from the UK, but he's stuck in Mexico. Uh, and now we're in the online space and everybody thinks, yeah, everybody looks for work online. Most people don't. Most people look for work in their local places. So what you do is you offer you, you offer a job which lets them make twice as much as they're going to make in their local in their local country. You know, the average salary in Mexico, let's say for an administrator is $1,000 a month. Just to say, I'll pay you $2,000 a month to be my operational manager. Trust me. In the U.S., you're not finding anybody no. for two. And trust me, since you're a contractor – Forget about it. I don't have to worry about it. Medicare, benefits, Social Security, none of that stuff. You're a contractor. $2,000 a month, I'll pay you. They're ecstatic. They're making. They're working from home. They're making double what any other manager in the country is making to work from home. But you're getting somebody who has a master's degree from the United States. I For a while, I had an executive assistant who had a master's degree from the Netherlands in operational organiz organizational behavior. What do you call it? Behavioral organization um, or organizational, organizational behavior. behavior. There you go. <laughs> that. Um but her dad was Canadian, so she spoke fluent English, Flemish, German, and French. Um, had a master's, and she was my executive assistant making $750 a month because she lived on a beach town here, a surfing beach town here in Mexico, where she just wanted to surf every morning. And I was paying way more than anybody else in that town would pay her. I mean, by you know orders of magnitude. And she's like, can I start an hour late every day because I'd like to go surfing in the morning? I'm like, yeah, 
knock yourself out. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm like, just go surfing. And I get somebody from that caliber. She worked with me for three or four years. Unfortunately, she moved back to the Netherlands. And, you know, I my salary was no longer good enough. But not only Mexico, expats. Find somebody in Bali. Find somebody who's living in Chile. Find somebody who's living in Argentina. They're stable. They're married. They're going to be stuck in this country for the – well, stuck. They're going to be in this country, these countries for the rest of their lives with their kids and their life is here. But you get to get them for this a steal. Fascinating. This is like the opposite of it's like the opposite of the traditional outsourcing advice because you you did pair it with the traditional outsourcing advice but it's also like you start there you start there but, but the, the key is you let's say you do the filipino va you'll be surprised that frees up like half your time right i'm not answering emails you don't realize how much time now i'm able to grow my business to the mm -hmm. next level boom then i hire it especially when you're starting the business the key is reinvesting in the business right if I tell people, if you make, if your business makes $5,000 a month and you take home, you spend $5,000 a month on yourself, you have a hobby. You don't have a business because as soon as you have one month where things don't work out, you're done, right? There's no savings. You're not investing. Mm -hmm. You have no team. There's nobody who can cover the back. You have a hobby. But if you're, you know, you take that bare minimum, I make $5,000 a month. You take 4,000 and then you make 6,000. You still take 4,000 because you're now you, you take that extra thousand. You hired another staff member. That's how you grow businesses, right? Oh, that's how you bootstrap businesses. It's a matter of reinvesting um, all the money in. And that's what you do with this G-Arbitrage. I got that cheap, the Filipino to take care the cheap one to get, get rid of all that and free up 30% of my time, which grew the business 30% more, which means now I can afford, maybe I can even pay myself a little bit. I took 20% of that paid for this expat and I took 10% more home with me, but I'm still investing it back in my uh, business. Interesting. So once you were able to remove yourself from from the whirlwind what's your next thought process is it immediately like i don't know i'm i'm gonna go start another company or did you have like a little mini retirement party <laughs> no 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 I'm, i've never had because the thing is it's never been so we actually the only i've sold two businesses the chocolate factory and the chain of language schools in mexico but whenever i always have other businesses going before mm, i okay i you know i'm either out of the day-to-day -day operation so there's never a stop start stop start kind of thing um, I always have a side hustle, a side idea that comes out. And the reason is, is because the businesses I build, I have kind of, my methodology is simply, I, as you're running businesses, there's always needs in your business, right? So you go out there, I'm like, I need a, a person who does this. I need a software who does this. I need a service who does this. Most of the time you'll find it. Every once in a while you go out and look for something, which is, you know, we'll talk about podcast talk later, which is my new project. But every once in a while, you go out and look for something and the, there's nothing there. You're like, or there's nothing good there, right? You're just kind of looking at it like there's nobody doing this. There's no way of doing this. That's where I launch my side. I'm like, okay, well, I'm an entrepreneur. Nobody's doing this. I'm going to do it. First, I'm going to see is it possible to do. If it's possible, I'm like, I'm doing it. So I build it. So I start building those. But since I'm a bootstrapper, it's kind of a slow building process that kind of builds it out until, you know, it makes enough money that it can hire people. The beauty of building multiple, the next businesses is I can reinvest everything back in, right? Let's say business A, your first business is making enough to pay your rent, your food. I don't need to take anything out of the first business for the next two or three years. So every penny that comes out, I'm gonna be either hiring staff or putting it into ads and all the rest of it until it gets to, let's just say seven figures. And then I can start pulling money out of it, maybe get an exit down the road. Um, so for podcasts, if that's the case, I don't plan on taking any money out of that for the next two or three years, uh, unless it like really explodes or something. Um, I'm not going to be touching it. But that's the, my methodology for businesses is as I run one business, I'm just keeping an eye out for needs. Make a note of it. You might not be the right time for you to do your side hustle right now, but make a note. And then six months down the road where you have a little more free time and your business is a little freer, you're like, yeah, nobody's still doing this. I mean, let me give it a shot. So just kind of have a little notepad or whatever works for you and write those ideas Fascinating. down. Fascinating. So when you're starting a business now, and we can talk about this in terms of podcast talk or, or any of your other companies, um, <laughs> when you're starting a business now, I imagine your ideology in terms of the processes and the structure of the company, not just like the, the, the amount of money that you're taking out of it is different than from your first one. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's night and day. So absolutely. What absolutely. Exactly. I didn't know what I didn't know in the beginning. I mean, I, I thought I knew everything when I first launched my first business. It worked. I'm like, this whole business thing's easy. Why do people write books about it? Yeah. Then I failed like a <laughs> dozen times and I'm like, okay, I, I might want to start reading up on it. So, <laughs> so how is it different now? Like when, when you're, when you're starting a company now, are you, do you have like a full fledged go to market strategy before you start? Do you have like, what, what, no. what's your process like when you're starting a company? Yeah. So my specialty is bootstrapping businesses, right? So f a full market strategy, going to market that takes money, that takes time, that takes investment and um, it takes time or money, right? I mean, it, that's the, 
magical formula for businesses, right? More money, less time, more time, less money, more time. That's mm -hmm. all there is to it. Um, and also, since I bootstrap businesses and a lot of my businesses are kind of concept ideas, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time promoting or developing something that may or may not work. So I'm much more of a follower of the lean startup methodology by Eric Ries. Kind of I do a minimum viable product, which, you know, for podcast talk, we're launching that in December. Minimal viable product. It's probably not. It's going to work, but it's not going to look pretty. It's, you know, it's going to probably have little bu have bugs in it and all the rest of it. And then you launch it. Then you take the feedback. You make it better. Then you re-release it. And, you know, you keep on doing that feedback loop for the first year or so. Then you start promoting the heck out of it, right? Once you get down, you really know that this is what people want. So my goal for podcast talk, for example, is to get 100 users in the first year. A lot of a Silicon Valley startup, for example, with a you know ten million dollars in investment, would look at that and be like, "No, are you crazy? We need a million, you know, hundred people per hour to sign up for that." But goes back to what we were talking about before. What are you building your business for? Do you want a hundred million dollar business or do you want a million dollar business? A million dollar business is a different animal. I want to have you know I want to build businesses between one to three million dollars. What I know how to do. Um, if you said I need to build a hundred million dollar business, I don't know how to do that. I mean, it's just I've been to conferences with people who've done it. And the things they talk about, I have no idea. Oh yeah, well you can equalize the balance the investment and you throw you know you we merge with these three companies. That's more stress than I want in my life. I like you know I have a nine month old in the other room. I want to spend time with him. You'd rather have ten um, one million dollars. So the, the way you do this, one ten million dollar business. That's it. My goal is actually to have three seven figure businesses. Right at that point, you know if one of them goes down, I'm fine. I live in Mexico. We're looking to move to Southeast Asia in a few years. We'll move back to the U.S. eventually, but not for a while. Um, and that's way more money than you need. I mean even here in Mexico. I drive a Hyundai, so don't think I have this like fancy lifestyle or anything like that. But we have a cook, we have a cleaner, we have a maid, we have a gardener, we have a night nurse, and we have a day nurse that helps wow. us take care of the kids. That's like, you know, but it's because they cost like $100, $200 a month to do it down here, right? So you don't need a huge amount of money. We don't need a huge amount of money to have a comfortable lifestyle here in Mexico. So when I'm building the businesses and I like this iterative building, right? Even LiveLingua was like that. We had one student the first month, three students the next month. 10 students the month after that. Nothing huge, right? But it was just like slowly building. It took five or six years. Well, it took seven years to get to seven figures, but it took three or four years to make decent money. But that means when we made mistakes, they weren't huge catastrophic mistakes. If you do this huge, big launch strategy, you tell everybody about it and then you launch and nothing works, you're done. The business is, I'm like, nobody's ever gonna, you know, you're just gonna have such a bad rep that never, nobody will be able to try it. If you use my methodology where you have one student, three students, 10 students or clients or whatever you want to call them. And something breaks on month six where you have 30 students. You might lose all 30 students, but in the grand scheme of the 8 billion people on the planet, if 30 people are bad about, talking bad about you, unless one of them happens to be a celebrity or something, nobody's ever going to know. I mean, 30 people had a bad experience, but you learn from that. You're like, why did they all leave? Why did I mess up? I mean, most of the time you don't mess up so bad right. to lose all your clients, but you might do something bad that you're going to lose like 20% of them. Okay, I better fix that before I get another 20 clients. And but you have time to do it. You're not in panic. You're not you don't have 100 staff people to support yet. You probably have maybe have one helper and you're like, "Okay, I can take that hit. I'll spend the next 2 or 3 months fix that. Let's get those 10, you know, let's get 10 more clients back. But but now that I got those guys back, they're not going to have that same problem. I'm not going to lose them for the same reason. I fixed that." And then you do it again and you'll have another problem 3 months down the road. Within two or three years, you'll have this fine, you know, without having invested very much money, you're going to have this smooth, you know, fine-tuned machine for whatever your product or service is. Then scale the heck out of it. Then you promote it, right? Then you're just like, yeah, I know this works. I can get 50 people in here today, and I would get the process. I have the team. I have the staff. I have the processes in place. Don't try to do that on day one. Although you're never going to launch because you're never going to have it perfect. Do you have a staff when you're starting out, or do you? is it just you and maybe a, a software developer helping you build your MVP? I actually, it's just me because I am a right. software developer. So nobody does what I want as much as I do. Generally, I would recommend probably you'd have a software developer with you to do it or maybe, you know, hire a company. Um, it takes your costs up a little bit. But even if you do that, I at least recommend you learn how to do wireframing mm -hmm. yourself. Um, for those who aren't familiar with wireframing, it's pretty much make the, you know, the application and the web or the website look more or less like you want it to look. And it's it looks like a website that works, but there's no code behind it. And there's some software out there that can help you do that. It's essentially PowerPoint level. If you know how to use PowerPoint, you can use the you know the wireframing software out there because otherwise that's where program you know if you just say you have a Zoom meeting with the program like I wanted to do this, that never comes across right right because in your head it looks this way it does this but then the programmer think hears it in a different way and that's where people mm -hmm. waste a lot of money. So at least learn how to wireframe if you're going to do it and have the programmer do it. Otherwise, I like doing things myself in the beginning because then when I'm hiring people to do the job, I know exactly what they want to do. 
right? Even on the programming end. If a programmer comes to me and says, yeah, that'll take three months. I'm like, no, it won't. I can do that in two weeks. I, I mean, I've been going for 20 years. You, you can't pull one off on me, right? Or SEO or Facebook marketing. I know the, I've been doing SEO for a long time, but you know, Facebook marketing, I, I ran some ads myself, made some of them profitable. I spent like three months, not too much. But now if a Facebook marketer comes in and says, no, 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 that's not possible. I'm like, yes, it is. I know exactly which part of the Facebook, you know, business, the business account you go to, to go and do that. I'm not hiring you because you're trying to, you know, to fool me. So I, in every level of my businesses, I like doing it. It's my back, it's my bootstrap experience. I used to take trash out at, our, at the, you know, at our first business. So if you said, Hey, I can't take the trash out of that arm. Like I know exactly what night the trash comes. <laughs> I used to do, I did that for the first six months. I know exactly how to do that. Does that extend so to your whole business? That's kind of like, what I've been Do you know using. how to do every part of every business that you have? On a high level, yes. Wow. Yes, I'm like a jack of all trades, master of none, is what I try to be. So, so if, I don't do sales very well. Really? I, like sales calls, but I have none. That's of them. interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to that. But what do you recommend to people that aren't <laughs> software developers that want to have a software company? Is that just a bad idea? Should they not? Or do you think that um, there's hope there? There's hope, but in the ideal situation is you find a technical partner. There's a reason why when you go into the VC world, if you try to go raise capital and one of the people on your team is not a developer, they won't invest in you. Um, the risk is too high. Am I saying you can't succeed? Absolutely not. You can succeed, but you're taking your statistics way down, right? Building a business is hard enough as is. It would be like, let's say for me, uh, building a skyrise building. I know nothing about building a skyrise building. I mean, I might have an idea for one. I might even have a place to put it. I might, let's say I had the money to do it. It'd still be a really bad idea for me to build a Skyrise building because, you know, until I get somebody who's an architect in there, that's, I might get lucky. I might build it. It might grow. It might be this huge success, but I wouldn't bet any money on that. Um, and I think kind of doing a SaaS business, you know, software as a service business without a software guy on your team is kind of putting mm. you at the same level. Interesting. Um, why do you think sales is a weakness of yours? So marketing, I'm good at sales. I'm not sales is lack of practice and believe it or not, I'm an introvert. So kind of getting mm. on a sales call is not my idea of a good time. Um, I fake it pretty well. Uh, you do. So, you know, I go to conferences, I speak at conferences yeah, and everybody's like, yeah, he's not an introvert. I can go about two or three days and then I need just throw me in a room with a book and let me read for like a week. And then I need, I need some time to recharge. Um, Sales is an art. It's a skill. It's just one I haven't had time or I'll be honest, really the necessity to build. Um, I have built sales teams before. And I, you know, my first job out of college, I actually wrote CRM software for sales teams. So I, I at least know the sales process. This was, you know, essentially CRM, customer relationship management software. This was for a big Fortune 500 company and it had all the sales scripts there. I was the one who helped program it and build it. So, you know, I'm familiar with sales scripts kind of go the way they go through. Um, but I think for me, at least personally, a lot of it is sales is either following is the ability to listen well, which I'm working on, um, which I'm not always that great at. You know, you have to kind of pick up cues by the person mm -hmm. you're listening to and kind of feed it back to them. And it's also requires a lot of thinking on your feet. And I've learned I've learned that, you know, I'm not a dumb guy. I can process stuff, but it you know it takes me about 24 hours to come up with the best answers. That's not really good on a sales call. I'm like, okay, you asked me a question. Let me call you back tomorrow and I'm going to give you an answer to that question. <laughs> that doesn't work very well on the sales call. Um, so it's partially, you know, acknowledging my weakness. Could I become good at sales? I think anybody could with enough work. I just haven't had the time um, to put in the work up until now. And luckily I've been able to hire salespeople already there. So the necessities kind of goes down as well on the sales. So end. do most of your businesses then have transactions that happen online? So sales people aren't as necessary? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds way better. Um, podcast talks, I'm actually, <laughs> it is. No, no, no. Like live lingua, we have thousands of students. I mean, I, most of them go through, you know, it automated. Half of them, we have very little few touch points. I mean, they just buy and sign up on the web. If they only contact customer support, if there's an issue, right? So, you know, if there's an issue with the payment, they want to change teachers. Our, we have a customer support team for them. I actually do send them all a personalized, every single student who signs up for live lingua, I send a direct email to saying, thanks for signing up. And so everybody does have my personal email. So I, I kind of get involved in the support there, but I don't have to get on the phone with them. Podcast talk, I'm trying a slightly different model, especially with the beta group. It's There's going to be no sign up um, right off the bat. It's going to be a demo call. So I'm going to be doing demo call with everybody, showing them the software. And then if they want on the demo call, I'll have them sign up. So that's sort of going to mm -hmm. be a sales call, but I'm doing it mainly 
to push my limit. I've never done it before. I'd like sure. to try something new. Um, and obviously I'll hire somebody to do it eventually, but in the beginning, it's also feedback. It, I want to shorten the feedback loop. You know, if I'm on a call with you and I'm showing you podcast talking like that doesn't make sense. Or if, if you start asking me questions, I'm the developer right now as well. I'm like, I'm going to be taking notes. I'm like, okay, you're the third person who's asked me about that. And obviously people don't get it. That's the use for me of doing these, these quote unquote demo sales calls. But after it gets to a point where nobody's asking questions anymore, yeah, I'm off. I mean, I'll, I'll get somebody else. This is something this. I admire about you already just from our first interaction, which this is, this is our first time speaking. Um, you seem to be very feedback driven and you're spending a lot of effort focusing on who your audience is. Um, and maybe you could speak to that a little bit about this thousand podcast challenge you're doing and um, you know what... Mm -hmm. uh, what notes you're taking about your audience as you're doing this? Cause you know, people like me, podcasters are the people that you're targeting with your next product. Um, what are you trying to learn from us mm -hmm. when you're doing this? Um, and how are you incorporating that into your MVP development? Sure. So I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. The first part is about the feedback and how I learned mm -hmm. to take feedback. I've been practicing martial arts for most of my life. That's kind of where I learned to take feedback huh. because there's in almost martial arts at the end of every practice, you go and you sit in front of your sensei, your Sifu, whatever, you know, country the martial art you're practicing is from and they the reason you do that is to get feedback right um, and there's a saying I kind of taught myself while we were doing that is there's only two people in the world that they and I kind of realized it as I was watching there's only two kinds of people that they never give feedback to and uh, those who are perfect or those who aren't worth huh. it. nobody's perfect right so if you're not getting feedback it means that they don't think you're worth getting feedback to you know, you're like, this guy's going to quit. I'm not even going to bother telling him what to telling him what to do. So I taught myself to appreciate the feedback. I'd be disappointed if I went up after one practice and my teacher did not give me feedback and say, you didn't do this right. You didn't do this right. So that was kind of a reprogramming of my mind because that means I know I'm not perfect. So, I mean, either they, were, they must not have been paying attention to me because they didn't see it's something I did wrong today. Right. So now I always encourage feedback and I, for better or worse, I always get it because I'm always doing something wrong that the teachers look at and they're like, yeah, you got your foot was in the wrong place. Your timing was off, something like that. So that's the feedback that's awesome. story um, as to why I was getting the feedback. So the 1000 podcast challenge is something I'm doing for podcast talk. Starting the second year, my idea is just to kind of put that I'm going to actually have a yearly 100 podcast challenge um, for our users. So if you're on her podcast, we're going to have like a $10,000 prize. The first person who gets on a hundred podcasts in the year, we're going to give like a $10,000 prize to, you know, the users of our, users of our software. Um, but what I'm starting off with right now is the 1000 podcast challenge. I'm going to try to appear as a guest on 1000 podcasts um, using podcast off to reach out to them. In fact, you know, Mac, that's how I found you, I think. Um, or was you? I was you in a Facebook, Facebook group? group. I don't remember. Um, I was going to say, like, that's group. crazy. Okay, how did I'm, you do that? <laughs> No, 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 I did not, but I, it has worked. So the backstory is, I think I, I've been sharing kind of basic use, user privileges of the podcast talk with some of my friends, right? So I had a friend on about a month ago and he says, look, I tried podcast talk and I emailed like 200 podcasts and nobody replied to me. And I was sitting there, I'm like, huh, wonder if something's broken. Let me test it out myself. So I went in there and I found 100 podcasts in the travel area. I travel a lot. So I'm like, I, I could get on about 100. You know, let me see how many podcasts I can get on. Max, you're a marketer. I'm like, 1% to 3% response rate. That sounds reasonable, right? From a cold email outreach, that sounds like a good response rate. So I send out 100 podcasts. Yeah, I got 34% response rate. I got on 34 podcasts in three what? days. Um, <laughs> so that backfired a little bit. I was, yeah, I've been on a lot of podcasts. You seem pretty practiced. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like I've been on quite a few of these things. Uh, so that's actually when the idea started. So I was on 34 podcasts. I did some math. I've been on a number of podcasts before, so I was on about 20 podcasts. But this was over the last four or five years, right? So I've been on about 20 podcasts before that. And I'm like, one, this is kind of fun, you know, appearing on podcasts. I've had my own podcast before. And I have all, my res all the respect in the world for the amount of work, you know, you guys have to put into podcasts. You have to prep. You have to research. You know, you either have to spend money on a producer to do it or you do your own editing and then you have to pay for your hosting on Libsyn and then distribute it to iTunes, you know, Google Plays, Alexa, whatever all that stuff is, right? So producing a podcast is a lot of work. But what happens if you want to kind of, you want to take advantage of everything that podcasts have to offer, but you don't have time to do all that work? So I'm like, why don't I just start getting on more podcasts instead of me trying to produce my own podcasts? So that's when the 1,000 Podcast Project came about. I'm like, let me get on 1,000 podcasts. I'm like, you know, the average podcast, they say, has about 1,500 downloads per episode. 
according to Libsyn statistics, right, uh, across the board. If I was on 1,000 podcasts, one, I'm cutting off all the time because I don't have prep. I don't do that. I just show up on the podcast and I'm able to, you know, talk about what I'm passionate about anyway. But I get in front of 1.5 million people, you know, 1,500 downloads per for 1,000 podcasts. I get in front of 1.5 million people for pretty much for free, right? I mean, you know, I just show up for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and I do that. There's an additional SEO benefit. A lot of podcasters have their own website, so I'm getting a backlink to my websites mm. from this as well. So this is additional benefit that'll last for years, even if, if my episode was released a year ago, I have a backlink from this. There's additional backlinks because everybody's syndicated. So if I show up on yours, I got a backlink from iTunes, from Stitcher, from you know everywhere, um, you know, listen notes, everywhere that actually just aggregates podcasts. I get that as well. Plus, I get in front of an audience that I probably wouldn't have access to. So that's the 1,000 podcast challenge. I'm trying to launch podcast talk. I'm avoiding doing any straight off SEO. I'm only going to be using po- I'm going to be using podcast talk and being on podcasts to promote podcast talk and you know to prove that this is a great way to build a business. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think you pretty much just sold me on it. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because you've done it like me before. You produce a podcast. You know how much work it is for you to you know, yeah. to actually do this. Finding guests is hard too. It is. Right? I, I really enjoy that process, but it is. You know, it, if you could automate it, that'd be sweet. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. what uh, what is the opportunity that you saw when you started Podcast Hawk? You said that like you typically start these companies when you're there's something you want in one of your businesses that you can't have. Uh, exactly. What, what was it in this case? So that's exactly it. So I wanted to, you know... Get another traffic stream into LiveLingua. You know, we do SEO. We have a, we have our own podcast. It's a top ten in the world for language. So we kind of through through that we get some people. Um, Facebook ads and PPC haven't really worked out for us. Just we're, we you know our cost of a, co- a customer lifetime value is not high enough. It's about three hundred dollars for a course is what you know where you, the break even point is. And our customers, you know, we don't make that much off of each one of our customers. So. I'm like, let me try, you know, let's get on other people's podcasts, see if this could help drive some traffic there, just as an experiment. Again, I'm an SEO, I'm like, backlinks, great, I get backlinks. Worst case scenario, nobody listens to this other episode I was on, I at least got a backlink from their website, and that's going to take our ranking up a little bit. So the first thing I did was like, okay, let me go and find some podcasts to get on. How hard could this be? So I go on Google and podcasts. I'm like, nope, that doesn't work because I was, you know, business podcasts. You know, to get 10 results, half of them are just like, you know, the top 10 business podcasts or something like that. So it's not even results. You go into those and you click on them. The ones in the top 10 list are, you know, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss. I'm like, well, as much as I'd love to be on Joe Rogan's show, there's not yeah. a chance that he's going to have me on anytime soon. Um, so that was useless. I'm like, okay, let's just go directly to the source. Let's go to iTunes and let's look up podcasts. Yes, anybody's tried to use the iTunes podcast search functionality. No. Type in business podcast, you might get the first 50. I'm like, I know there are 1.4 million podcasts in the world, and I'm just getting 50 results here. Not only that, half of these results you click on, they haven't made an episode in 90 days. They're not even active podcasts, right? They might have were discontinued or something else. Um, and there's no contact information there. So now I got to go back to Google, do a Google search for these people, try to find where their websites are, find their contact information, reach out to them. Imagine trying to get on 100, 1,000 podcasts with that process. It's ridiculous. So I was thinking, I was sitting here back, you know, and I also got my executive assistant, spend a week doing it. She got me like 30 contacts. I'm like, you spent a whole week? She's like, yeah, this is really hard. We reached out to agencies. There's agencies out there that'll get you booked on podcasts. So I'm like, yeah. They're like, we'll get you booked on five to 10 podcasts for one to $5,000, $1,000 to $5,000. And I'm like, I'm not paying you $5,000 to get me on five or 10 podcasts. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous, right? Who can afford that? So I went through this whole process. This took about like two months, right? I'm like, there's, you're kidding me. We spent two months and there's no way to efficiently get on podcasts. I was a podcaster, right? I had a podcast. I sometimes had trouble getting guests. I know there are podcasters out there that are looking for guests, but there's no easy way for us to connect. So being a software engineer, I'm like, okay, I have an idea. If I could just get every podcast in the world and all their contact information in a database, then all I'd have to do is search it, right? I mean, you know, it's essentially it'd become Google. You just go in there and like, you know, put in some search criteria and boom, here are the podcasts, here's the contact information. Can that be done? And I was like, let me give it a shot. So one weekend, I just kind of sat down and I created an MVP. Uh, it didn't finish in a weekend, right? Getting millions of podcasts, 45 million episodes, you can't get all of them. But I did prove that it physically could be done, right? I had ways of getting the podcast from iTunes, getting the information from iTunes. Um, next weekend, I'm like, okay, how about their email? Because iTunes doesn't mm-hmm. share their emails with you. Um, so like, can I get their email addresses? 
did some investigation, spent a weekend or two trying to figure out how to do that. And I'm like, yes, yes, I can. So I, you know, I, I had that ready. I'm like, okay, is there any way I can automate sending emails out? And I Googled that and I'm like, oh yeah, there's some classes that do, do that for you. There you go. Those are the three pieces I need to build my business. So I built an MVP. I, I ran the way to, I got, you know, got all the podcasts and it's still, it's still running now. So new, if you know, a new episode comes out, it goes into our database within three days, a new podcast comes out within three days. It, it'll appear in our database as well. Um, and now we're building the skin. So I have the database. We're building the skin on top of it, essentially the search engine on top of it. And that's what we're looking to launch in January, 2021. Cutting it close with the development time. So it might be February, but the beauty of a soft launch, right? I'm not having this big announcement January 1st saying it's live. And then everybody goes in there. No, it isn't. I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, sorry. You know, to the people who are signed up for my beta group, there's about 70 people signed up now. I know a lot of them, you know, I've been on their podcast and I, or I know that some of my business friends, I'm like, Sorry, we need another four weeks. Nobody's going to be like, oh, Ray, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, they know me. They're like, okay, I'll wait another four weeks to get 80% off this product. Um, so we build that on there. And now the functionality we have in place, um, we're about 70% of the way there. You can go in there. Now you, we have all these search criteria. I mean, we have episodes, we have reviews. So Max, let's say you want to be on marketing podcasts. So you go in there. I'm looking for podcasts in the marketing category because I'm pretty sure that's a category in iTunes under marketing. They've at least, I want them to be around a little bit. So I want them to make sure they had at least 20 episodes that are live. They've had the word PPC in a description of one of their episodes at some point, because I'm a PPC expert, let's say. So I want to make sure that they talk about my, my subject. Um, they have at least 4.5 stars so that they're pretty good. They've released an episode in the last 30 days. So I know that they're live. And I don't know, the host name is Max. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever, you know we, we let you guys choose your criteria. Then you hit search so now instead of spending hundreds of hours one to three seconds and i just you just get a list of hundreds mm. or thousands of podcasts back you go through the list you're like okay that would be some i did it for travel as i said there are a lot of disney related travel podcasts so i had to delete that from the list because i mean that was totally irrelevant to me i mean i'd be sending them an email I'm like i went to disney when i was 10 but i don't think that's going to be a very interesting story for them um so you kind of go through the list you clean it up you hit save and then it brings you up to this like email automation page where we have four emails. It's very simple right now. We'll make it more sophisticated in the future where we allow, you know, your first email that goes out, which it allows you to kind of insert, you know, hi, first name. And then you have the stuff in there and then you can customize a part of the pitch below that. Just say, hey, because we have the podcast description there on the left while you're customizing the email. So you know exactly what their podcast is about. So you can say, hey, I see that you talk about PPC. I love episode number 32 where you talked about with this guy about PPC. For example, right? Because it's just right there on the left. You don't have to go to their website and all the rest of it. Hit save and then sit back. Let's say you got a list of a thousand podcasts. Depending on the plan, it's 10, 20, I think it's 10, 20, or 30 emails a day that we send out. Um, it used to be more, but then when I got my 33% response rate, I'm like, yeah, if I start sending out 2,000 emails a day, people are going to be getting on 60, 600 podcasts in 30 days. Uh, I, I don't think that that's just a little bit much for most people. So we're, we're, we're testing those numbers out. Um, but then you sit back and what happens is it sends out this email. We use things called lookalike servers. So if your website's abc.com, we help you set up abc.net um, and we send the emails through there. So we're not even risking your own personal email to do this, right? So if for some reason they don't like the emails and all these people mark you as spam, it's never happened. We've tested similar things out for three or four years and never happened. But just not to risk your main business, we'll help you set that up. When they reply, we'll filter out the out of office replies and all those kind of things. But anything that says, yeah, I'd love to have you on the show forwards automatically into your inbox. And then all you do is pick a time for their calendar and you arrange a time and you show up on shows. So if you set it up right, let's say you get 5,000 podcasts and you're in your campaign and you're on our lowest level, you pretty much sit back for the next year or two. And you know every week we just pitch 100 different podcasts. If new podcasts get released while our, your script is running automatic and it matches your criteria, it automatically gets added wow. to the list. So you don't even have to go there and look again in six months because a new podcast came by past the 25th episode mark and it matches your criteria, boom, it's on our list. So you just sit back and hopefully you just get podcasts every month and you're just waiting for the acceptance things to show up in your wow, inbox. Wow, that's pretty cool. I imagine part of the benefit of doing this uh, thousand podcast campaign is like you got, you know, you just got me interested in this because one of the ways you grow a podcast is by, uh, you know, going on other people's podcasts. So is is that another motivation that's exactly you, is like to build up your waiting list? That's it. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I'll be honest, a lot of the podcasts I'm on, a lot of podcassters are interested and they're actually on yeah. the beta group. Right <laughs> yeah. I'm you know, going to be in a few minutes. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, and to, please do, please do. The way the beta group works is it's not free, but we're giving like 70% off our normal cost and you lock it in for life. So normally the costs are going to be about 
starting is going to be about 150 to 250 dollars a month might sound expensive but literally if i could get you on five to ten podcasts for 150 dollars a month depending on your business if you get one client per podcast or one client for every two podcasts you're making that money back 10x i mean right? i mean that's not even close yeah exactly so um but for the beta group, it's going to be like $50 a month for life, as long as they don't cancel their thing. The only deal is obviously you got to get on a call with me every 30 to, you know, after about 30 or 60 days and tell me everything that sucks about the product. Mm. I mean, you know, that's the reason, right? This didn't work. This doesn't, this isn't brutally, brutal honesty is what I asked for. Let me know what you hate. What you like is fine too, but that's not quite as useful to me. Um, you know, let me know what's not working for you. And once, you know, if I get 50 people telling me exactly the same thing, that's the first thing we're fixing. And then, you know, I get on another 60 days later, I contact everybody. It's like, okay, we fixed everything you guys said. I need to get on there. Use it again for another 30 days. I need to get on a call with you guys in another 30 days. Tell me everything that's not working for you again. And we just do that for the first year. That's the plan. And then it gets gets out of beta and it fully launches in 2021. Hopefully with most of the big kinks worked out. Makes sense. Uh, it makes, makes a ton of sense. Sounds like a sweet deal. Um, so yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of other questions for you, uh, in slightly different, but related, uh, not going to go totally off, off, uh, off track here. But one thing I was curious about, why did you choose to consolidate all of your businesses into one parent company, Ravensoft Ventures? Was, what was the strategy behind that? Taxes. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> just one, it made my taxes easier. It also makes tax deduction, um, a lot easier because I'm able to deduct, you know, since they're all, they're all DBAs, right? So it's under Ravensoft LLC. Um, Ravensoft is actually a S corp sole proprietorship, right? Because all my staff is actually our contractors. So mm -hmm. technically speaking, I'm the only employee, I'm the only full-time employee there that opens up a whole bunch. Like I have an I-401k, so it opens up the option for me to have an individual 401k or solo 401k, um, depending on who you're with. Um, also, that when I kind of sell companies, I'm able to spin them off a little bit more quickly. So I can, you know, I'll, let's say I sell company A, I'm able to spin it off. I use LegalZoom.com. I'll register to some business and pull it out when I need to. But otherwise, what you're doing is you're paying taxes on seven, seven different companies. And what, there might be some benefits for bigger companies to do that for me. According to my accountant, that wasn't the case, right? I can deduct any expense from any company. If one company does badly one year, great. You know, because I can deduct that from the taxes well, not great, but, you know, theoretically, I can deduct the losses from the profits of another company and I pay less taxes across the board, right? Because company A lost money, but company B made it. But when you put them together, I'm mm. at zeros. So I don't know. I don't know taxes this year. So you can kind of do create. I can say, you know, I can pass things between companies without having to worry about selling them and putting that on the different balance sheets. Company A sold the computer to company B. No, it didn't. It's the same company. We just passed it over. I don't have to reported anymore, so that, right? that kind of leads into my next question is like do you share an infrastructure between these companies do you have operational staff that like works between the companies no 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 um with the exception of like some like my executive assistant and stuff like that which just helps me organize my meetings for all the company i do keep the company separate um for the most part i'm not going to say there's never been a time like uh when we were launching the marketing agency infinite upcycle we were short on graphic designers for like a week or two somebody got sick and i was able to bring the graphic designer over from another company to come in there or like, hey, some programmer in one of my companies is not able to fix something, but I know the programmer another company has, I can have them talk to each other, right? But that doesn't mean they're working in those two businesses. I just, you know, it's more of an exchange of knowledge, um, kind of patching up holes, for example, in different companies. The idea is because I'd like to be able to sell a lot of these companies. And if you have too much mix max, mixing between the companies, then the buyer is gonna be like, wait, does she work for this place or does she work for this place? It's not clear. Mm -hmm. So in this one, everybody works for their own companies and they stay in those. What about in terms of like marketing, for example, do you do you share marketing strategies between the between the companies or do you have an agency? That oh, you that use? one we do. That one we can definitely do. Yeah. Um, for example, Twidgicate, which is a social network for schools that I have. Um, we've promoted Live Lingo over there to that mailing list, right? Sure. Like, hey, it's Christmas, buy some gift cards on language lessons and stuff like that. Um, we don't lie about it. I mean, they know if you look at us, we're the same, it's all owned mm -hmm. by Ravensoft. I'm like, like, we're not trying to pretend. We say it's our, I think I call you sister company. Our sister company, Live Lingua is saying, is having this sale and we'd love to offer it to you guys. Um, so we have done that kind of thing before. Not all of my companies, like, you know, the chocolate factory in the Philippines is not exactly, I can't exactly be selling chocolate through Live Lingua. That would be just that, that would, there wouldn't be very much congruence in the marketing over there. It's like what? Wait, what? You know, I signed up for Spanish lessons. <laughs> Why are you trying to promote, you know, pralines to me or something like that? I don't know what's going on. Um, so there's not too much of an overlap there, but we can definitely use stuff. Uh, other benefits, right? When I buy like 
rights to photos, I can use them across mm. all my businesses because I buy a mass Ravensoft, so I can use those images. You know, it's the same business using the images, even though there might be a different logo on there. There are a lot of benefits to be able to do it. That this makes way. sense. Um, I would be doing my audience a disservice if I didn't pause for a second and ask you why you have a chocolate factory in the Philippines. <laughs> I mean, not? it just caught me way <laughs> off guard, man. <laughs> what? That's you got the, all these software companies yeah, and language like, companies. Why would, why would you? <laughs> yeah. So no, the the way that worked, I'm actually selling my stock off in the chocolate company in the factory, so I won't be an owner for much longer. But it's amicable. My operation is. Um, partners is, is the one buying those stocks. So I've mentored some people in the past on business. So there was this girl in the Philippines, as I mentioned, I'm half Filipino, um, that I mentored. She wanted to start a virtual assistant business. It didn't work out. But her family had this, had a background in chocolate. But in the Philippines, they have the kind of this low-grade chocolate they use for chocolate milk called tablea. Um, and her family does that. You essentially just grind up the cacao and then you throw it in milk. There's nothing, there's no real, add sugar and you, you know, that's it. She won a scholarship to go to Belgium to study chocolatiering at Ghent University, which is where the Godiva chocolatiers and all the rest of them, they teach. Um, it's a program where when you're from a developing country, they'll take you there and all the rest of it. So she went and won that. We stayed in touch. She came back to the Philippines. She's like, look, I know how to make Belgian chocolate. Nobody is using Filipino cacao in this country to make Belgian chocolate right now. I'd love to start a business, but I for this, I actually need some capital. I mean, you know, unfortunately, you can't bootstrap a chocolate factory. There's like... You know, $10,000 machines and stuff like that that you need to, like conch machines and certain kind of facilities that you need, certain fridges to keep the temperature at the right temperature. Um, her parents, while they were in the business, you know, it was a very small artisanal business. I mean, we're talking like a few hundred dollars a month in income. They couldn't afford this kind of thing. So I'd known her for years. She's like, hey, would you like to, would you guys be interested in investing as an angel investor? Now, I don't like chocolate very much. I'm a gummy bears guy myself. <laughs> but I turned to my wife. I'm like, hey, honey. Would you like free chocolate for the rest of your life? And she's like, yes. I'm like, okay, here's an opportunity. <laughs> so, and so we talked about it and she's like, okay, let's do that. So we invested in the chocolate factory. We gave the seed capital and we were majority owners um, for quite a few years. The reason I'm selling it off, while it's a profitable company, the profit is not worth the time I've mm. had to put into it. Um, you know, it's a great amount of money for the Philippines, but by US standards, it'd be like, you know, in the Philippines, you made $1,000 a month, you'd be middle upper class, if not upper class. The U.S. you make a thousand dollars a month. I'm like, I better go and work at McDonald's. I think you'll do better. And right these days, I think under in unemployment, that unemployment check would give you more more money than that, right? So, it it was some that kind of calculus for us, which is why we're selling off our stocks in the chocolate factory. But it was a great experience for five years. We went there. We went to the Philippines every year. We learned a lot about chocolatiering um, that we knew nothing about. And we, had, my wife, had not been to the Philippines before, but now she knows all my family there, all the rest of it, because. Business expenses. Every time we fly there, it's a business uh -huh. expense. So we took 33% off that. Uh, you know, every hotel, Airbnb, business expense. Because while we were seeing family, we were honestly there for work at the same time. Very so. cool. This, this, uh, you know, you got me thinking like maybe people should broaden their horizons and do things outside of the, the niche that they're used to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also look internationally. I think a lot of the problem, the challenges that people face in the United States is exactly that. One of the things I like to tell people is I, I know the secret to giving you. So Max, I can give you a 400% raise in five hours. Hit me. And then exactly. Just get on a plane, fly to a beach town in Mexico. You're done. You just got a 500% raise. Because everything here costs one fifth of what it costs in the United States, but you you work online, so you just have you're you're still making U.S. dollars. You know your job would not be affected at all, but suddenly your money goes five times as far. You can do a lot better than that. Go to the Philippines. You're talking a 10x raise overnight. You know that's a 12 hour flight, but you can get a 10x raise. You know if you're living middle class in the United States, you are rich in most of the world. There's a study out there that if you make fifty thousand dollars in the world, you are the one percent. I mean, you know, the 1% that everybody in the world, you are the 1%. Take advantage of that. Move somewhere. You know, people, let's say people are afraid of Mexico because of the news. It's not that bad. I mean, Chicago, I'd be much more afraid to go to Chicago here. The city I live in is safer than most places in the United States. But if you're afraid of here, go to Costa Rica. They got a great rep. You know, you can go there and surf on the beach, perfect temperature all year round. They have high-speed internet. You're in the same time zone. It's the United States. But everything costs one-fifth. You know, so you live in a small apartment. My sister lives in D.C. in a 500 square foot apartment. For that price, you could have a 3,000 square foot house on the uh -huh. beach. 
in many places in Latin America. That's a that's an attractive proposition, so, and I'll tell you what, like my lifestyle is set up in a way that I I could do that. That would be really cool. Like I'm I, I live in an Airbnb, like I was telling you beforehand. I just kind of move around, so that, mm -hmm. I could do it in another country too. But maybe after COVID, do it. It's called. Yeah, well, as I said, COVID puts an end. I'm really tied into something called the there's the location independent digital yep. nomad community. Um, there's actually there are groups of entrepreneurs around the world, like some of my closest friends. I've seen them all over the world. I mean, I see them, you know, I've hung out with them in Thailand, then I hang out with them in Europe, then I hang out with them in South America because they just live this lifestyle. We're not tied to any place. In my case, I have a home base, but I told you we're looking to move to Southeast Asia for the next two years because we want our son to grow up trilingual. You know, English is for me. My wife speaks Spanish. She's studying in the U.S. She speaks English as well. But, you know, we're looking to go to Singapore because we want them to learn Mandarin. Um, that's the option that's open to us. Now, Singapore is not cheap. Singapore is New York City prices. But, you know, they're, we just don't want to live in China because of the Internet restrictions. Right. But you are opening yourself up to all of these possibilities while, you know, the U.S. is a great country, but it's not as developed as a lot of people think the us is first world everybody else is third world trust me that's not the case travel a little bit you're i see more bmws and ferraris on the street in my city than anywhere else i have a one gigabyte internet connection in my house i watch netflix i use uber eats and we go to costco on the weekend to get our food i mean like really <laughs> what do you guys yeah there's an outback steakhouse down the road i mean you want you want some steak we'll go and get some steak um you know, but I pay a fifth of everything, a fifth of what most people in the United States pay for everything else. It sounds like a phenomenal way to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, trust me. I lived in the U.S. and paid high rent and had my mortgage, had my car payments to worry about all the time. I don't want to go back to that. I, I have no mortgage. We own our house. I have no car payments. I have no debt. Wow. Um, that's inspirational. <laughs> so thank you so much. I've learned so much from you, both about business and uh, potential relocation. But uh, I, I really appreciate that. Where can people find you? Where, where, should you, where do you want to send people? Sure. So the two best ways to find me are LiveLingua and Podcast Talk. So go to LiveLingua.com, go to the About Us page, and my email is right there. We, you know, we, we go with the mom and pop angle, so we're not like this big, since we're a bootstrap, we're, we're not this big company where there's only a contact page. You can do that. Or if you're listening to this within the next six to 12 months, go to podcasthawk.com, go to the contact us page. And since I bootstrap businesses, I am the contact us <laughs> support. So you just fill out that contact. It comes right into my inbox and you can get in touch with me. Social media, I'm not super active. Um, I like, one of the things I say is I'm, you know, I don't have time to be witty on Twitter every single day. I'm like, say something smart on Twitter every day. I, I don't have time for that. But if you want to get in touch with me on social media, I'm old school. Go to Facebook, look up rayblakeney.com. You'll find somebody who's sword fighting. It's what I do for fun. And add me and I'd be happy and to And one last question before you go. Um, in your in the, okay. in the spirit of, of you being a feedback-driven guy, um, what, you know, you spent a lot of time looking at podcasts and speaking to other podcast hosts. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give me as a podcast host? I would actually let me bring it up. I actually have the data. Oh, please. <laughs> so I'm like, let, me, let me just let me just bring that up. So we're looking here. Okay, for your, yeah, you're you're actually doing a lot of the things right, but you haven't done a lot. Let's see, I haven't gotten through all of it yet. Reminder emails before you the episodes is something that some podcasters do, not as many as I thought. Um, usually the best practice for that is send a reminder the 24 hours before and then 15 minutes before, uh, for people to get on the podcast, you'll, your miss rate will go down a lot for that. Um, uh, post emails. I haven't gotten to that yet, but a lot of people do not send post podcast emails. So there's usually a thank you for the guests. Um, when I had a podcast, schedule it in, I use, you know, Google's boomerang, just free plug in there and you just schedule it. You know, when your podcast guests are there, it auto sends it the next day. You don't actually have to worry about it. Um, Final thing is that a lot of people do, again, we're not at the end of it yet, but you can also, in that follow-up email the next day, you ask if they have any friends that you think would be good. You know, Do you know anybody who'd be a great guest for my podcast? You as a podcaster, that'll help you get your network out there. It's easier for you. You don't have to go and look for things. Um, and the final one, which you probably will do, but most people, I'm surprised the number of people who don't, let the guests know when their episode is released. I have been on about a third of the podcasts I've been on. I've been on about 70 so far. Do not tell me when they release the podcasts. I kind of, I keep track of it and I follow up and, you know, I check three months later whether it's been released or not. And I find them that they have been released. They never emailed me. They never told me. I'm not able to share it with my audience. Nothing. I just kind of find it on Google that they don't actually say that your podcast 
is released. Um, so those are some basic, basic things. Um, there's some int- there's an intro email sequence, which I'll be sharing on the website once it's there, that you can also do, get people prepped for the podcast, a lot of the technical side. Most people haven't been on podcasts before, so they don't really know, you know, I had a podcast when I had one. The guy went to a coffee shop and I heard like blending frappes in the background. I'm like, I thought it was obvious that you shouldn't be in a coffee shop, but you apparently have to tell people that, you know, so the little things in there. But honestly, you've checked off most of the things that I'm tracking. Um, as I said, scheduling software, using a real podcast um, recording app and having a podcast mic. Again, I've had been on a few podcasts where it's just their laptop and you can tell mm-hmm. the difference in the sound quality when they're on there as well. All right. So... I will be sending a full report when we're fully done, but I haven't, you know, we're not done Sounds yet. So I'll send that when Appreciate we're done. Appreciate that. Um, awesome stuff, man. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Max. It was, yeah, it was. It was yeah, it was. Talk soon.